0: we're reading from verse 12 to 17 today therefore brothers we have an obligation but it is not to the sinful nature to live according to it for if you live according to the sinful nature you will die but if by the spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body you will live because those who are led by the spirit of god are sons of god if indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory.
1: Thank you very much. Uh, Well, when uh, Russia invaded Ukraine last year, remarkably, uh, the soldiers uh, weren't told where they were going. Uh, They thought they were on a training uh, exercise, only to suddenly find themselves across the border being told to either kill uh, or be killed. Uh, It's no surprise, is it, that the first wave Uh, was very confused and uh, their hearts weren't really in the fight. And I think there's a lesson there for the Christian life. If we're not told what to expect, we'll be very easily confused and very easily discouraged. It's been a genuine uh, joy to uh, listen in over the last few weeks uh, to the uh, sermons on uh, on Romans. And Gareth and Neil have really helped us to see uh, that uh, as Christians, that the Spirit has freed us from the penalty uh, of sin. Uh, verse 1 said, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And the Spirit will one day free us from the presence of sin. Verse 11 and if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies. Uh, but in the meantime, there is a gap. Uh, and as Neil uh, and Joe this morning mentioned, that wakes us up in a war zone. Uh, we're thrown into a battle with sin. Sin is, is still with us and becomes an enemy that we're now at war with, that we have to fight against, that we have to kill and put to death. And if we're not prepared for that, if we're not expecting it, then it'll be very easy to be confused and easy to be discouraged. We'll be left asking, well, has something gone desperately wrong? Why do I find it so hard? Am I really a Christian? Would a real Christian have temptations like these? And well, today's passage is going to set uh, our expectations for the Christian uh, life, for the ordinary uh, Christian life. And I want to approach it today by asking uh, just two very simple questions. Who do we serve and how do we serve? Uh, so firstly, who do we serve? Uh, verses uh, 12 to 13 begin. Uh, Therefore, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation, but it is not to the flesh to live according to it. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. See, as Christians, we have now uh, changed sides. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not very good at football illustrations. Usually I have to ask Simon or someone to check them beforehand. Uh, but I think I, I'm okay uh, with this one. Uh, if a player were to transfer from uh, one team to, to another, to... Change the red uh, of Manchester United for the blue of Manchester City. Well, that comes with it. Uh, A freedom from obligation and a new obligation, doesn't it? Uh, They would be freed from their duty of scoring goals for the red team and they would have a new duty, a new obligation to start scoring uh, for the blue team. And the same is true of the Christian life. Uh, Before we became Christians, uh, we served our old boss, our old uh, master, what Paul calls here the flesh uh, or the body. Uh, Verse 5 said that those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on what the flesh desires. I know that's not talking, is it, about uh, our physical appetites, our hunger, our thirst, and our sleep. Uh, Paul's not saying uh, deprive yourself of what your physical body needs. He's speaking about our flesh as the seat of our sinful desires. Uh, Galatians 5 uh, gives more detail. Uh, There he tells us that the acts of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions and envy, drunkenness, orgies and the like. It's not an exhaustive list by any means, but if we were to look for a common denominator, a unifying factor behind all of them, well, we wouldn't go far wrong to say, well, they're all about self, aren't they? They're all selfish. Sexual immorality is taking what I want. Idolatry is a way of getting what I want. Fits of rage, our ways of insisting, On what I want. Uh, Selfishness can appear in in lots of ways Uh, from uh, the teenager who puts self first and refuses to listen to what their parents would say, Uh, to the adult who's too busy looking after their own life to look out for the needs of others, Uh, even to the retiree who just checks out and says, "Uh, Well, I've done my bit now, now it's your turn to, to serve me. Uh, serving the flesh is serving self and it promises life and peace it whispers into our ears uh, if you don't look out for for your interests well no one else is going to if you indulge that little fantasy uh, well you'll be happy Uh, well you've looked out for the interests of others for for long enough now it's time for a little me time surely Surely that sex on the side won't won't hurt anyone. It promises life, but provides only death. I was chatting to a Christian friend uh, a while back who uh, was looking back on his teenage years with deep regret. Uh, One night, uh, after drinking uh, way too much alcohol, uh, his girlfriend became pregnant. She later decided to have an abortion, and he, he now deeply laments that decision. The sin that promised joy and life only led to misery and regret. Speaking to another Christian on Friday who came to Christ later on in life, he's looking back on long years wasted trying to feed an appetite which could never be satisfied. Feeding the flesh promises life now, but it provides only death now and death later. If you live according to the flesh, you will die. Verses 7 and 8 said that the mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It doesn't submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. Pleasing the flesh does not please God, and so ultimately leads to the punishment of death which makes this transaction incredibly good news. This transfer is brilliant. Our transfer papers have gone through at great personal expense to God at the cost of his own dear son. We read in verse 3 that God sent his own son to be a sin offering, to take that condemnation which we deserve so that we can be freed from serving on the red team, so that we can be freed from serving self. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation, but it's not to the flesh to live according to it. Surely that is brilliant news. We no longer have an obligation to serve the master who is killing us. We don't owe a single cent to the sinful nature. It never gave us any benefit for which we should be thankful. It was never a good boss that we should show it any loyalty. Now, if you go down to London uh, and had a spare afternoon, I'd highly recommend uh, that you go to the Imperial War Museum, and particularly uh, to the Holocaust uh, exhibition. Uh, It's not a cheery uh, afternoon, uh, but it's well worth it. Uh, It brings you face to face with the horrors of the the Nazi prison camps, Auschwitz, Dachau, uh, Birkenau, uh, names synonymous with death. And it tells the whole story uh, from the ideology that that led up to them all the way to the time uh, where those who were incarcerated there were liberated. Uh, Just imagine uh, their joy for a moment to see those prison guards arrested and flee to be liberated, to no longer face that hard labor that brought only death. Once liberated, it would be unthinkable, wouldn't it, for them to, uh, to stay there and carry on working or feel like they had any sort of obligation to these guards. And the same is true of the Christian. We don't owe the flesh anything. Serving it was killing us. But we do have a new obligation an obligation to the Spirit. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation, not to the flesh, but verse 13 goes on, but if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, uh, you will live. Uh, Now on this, uh, the minister, John Stott, uh, helpfully, uh, I think, says that there is a kind of life which leads to death and a kind of death which leads to life. Uh, Living for self uh, promises life, but provides only death. Uh, But living for the spirit promises death, but provides life. And we do need to be very clear on that, don't we? Putting to death the misdeeds of the body will feel like death. Uh, I don't know about you, but I I particularly feel I'm quite selfish by nature. Uh, I want to do uh, what I want to do. And quite frankly, it feels like death to say no to that. When our fingers uh, hovering over that website, uh, when our anger's up, when we feel like we're in the right, uh, when we feel like we could probably get away with something, if we did, it will feel like death to try and stop. Jesus compares it to gouging out an eye or cutting off a limb. It feels like death but leads to life. If you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. Uh, Picture, uh, just for for a moment, uh, an alcoholic, someone who's enslaved to that incessant need for another drink, Uh, the wreckage of uh, of life and family all around them, the damage, uh, the internal damage to their organs leading to a slow and debilitating death. Well, for the alcoholic, uh, freedom is not uh, to be set loose in bargain booze on Friday night, is it? Uh, Freedom is for someone to come and take that bottle and smash it, to to carry them away and to to help them to fight that addiction. It will feel like death, absolutely, but it will lead to life. Uh, So too we can expect putting to death the misdeeds of the body to be painful, expect a battle, expect it to put up a fight and say, no, you've got to serve me. But notice how careful Paul is in his wording. He doesn't tell us to strive in our own strength, but says if by the spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. Uh, Striving in our own strength uh, is a dangerous path that that leads only either to pride or or despair. Uh, The way to fight the flesh uh, is by the spirit. Uh, The Spirit's uh, been helpfully, I think, compared to a spotlight who shines uh, a light uh, both on Jesus and and on us. Uh, Jesus says uh, in John that one of the Spirit's roles will be to convict the world of sin, And righteousness and judgment, Uh, he shines a torch into the dark recesses of our heart and brings to our attention uh, just what's going on there. Uh, That's our experience as we become a Christian. We become aware that the things that we're doing are sinful, uh, that we're not righteous, and that we need a rescue from that judgment. And then that continues all the way through our Christian life. The Spirit doesn't turn the torch off when we become a Christian. No, he keeps going, shining further and further into the back streets and alleys of our hearts. He brings to light new areas that need cleaning up, areas we didn't even know existed. If you ask any, old, any older Christian, well, they'll probably tell you that they feel more sinful today than they did 30 years ago. And hopefully that's, that's not the case. I think what's going on there is often that they've just had longer for the Spirit to shine that torch and, and highlight some of the sin in their life. But the Spirit isn't just here to make us feel guilty. He also shines the spotlight on Jesus and applies his work into my life. As I see my sin, he reminds me, well, Jesus has paid for that sin too. He reminds me how dreadful was the penalty that I've been spared. He reminds me there is no condemnation and that is now written on my record. He shows me the beauty of Christ and convinces me of the joy of living for him. And as that happens, uh, well, it's my job to go along with him, uh, to cooperate with the Spirit in putting sin to death. We are to go to war uh, with sin in our life. Uh, now, I don't know about you and, and, and your home, but in my house, uh, we have a kill-on-sight policy for spiders. Uh, spiders are vile creatures um, that deserve uh, extermination with extreme uh, prejudice. I can't sleep knowing uh, there's a spider still there. Uh, likewise, if, if there was poison in my house and I knew that it was going to kill me, well, I wouldn't rest until I'd, I'd removed it. And we have that same policy with sin. If you're not yet a Christian, there is a real warning here for us. Serving self will lead to death. It promises you life, but it won't provide. I really hope you realise that sooner rather than later. But for those claiming to be Christians, well, there's a, a serious warning for us here too. Who do you serve? When was the last time that you put sin to death? In your life? If, if you're claiming to be a Christian, but the answer was maybe six years ago, or I can't really remember, then you are in serious trouble. You might not have transferred from one team to the other. Paul does not say that there are two options here. The two <laughs> options are uh, between a, one happy Christian life and an even happier Christian life. The two options are either death or life kill sin or it will be killing you how can you possibly claim to to have life and yet be getting cozy with the thing which was killing you with the thing which was killed our savior the answer ought to be why, why only this morning uh, for those seriously struggling with sin there is encouragement here uh, things haven't gone wrong this is the experience of every believer whilst we wait. We're in a battle. Uh, ground will be lost and ground will be, uh, we t- be taken. We will still sin. Uh, the flesh still puts up resistance and puts up a pretty good fight. But even there, the Spirit reminds us there is now no condemnation uh, for those who are in Christ Jesus. Uh, the Spirit even uses our failure uh, to bring us closer to Jesus. And by God's grace, uh, over the years, those battle lines can, can move forward. This is every Christian's experience. It's even the experience of pastors. Uh, last week at Unite, I, I had to pull myself up, uh, up short. I, I'd just been uh, speaking and uh, w- was moving some chairs afterwards and found myself thinking, do you know what? I hope someone spots what a humble guy I am. Uh, Isn't that pathetic? I can even use humility as a source of of pride. I had to put it to death straight away. Christ has died for my immense ego. So we've asked, haven't we, who do we serve? Uh, Not self, uh, but the spirit. And the, the next question to ask is, how do we serve? Uh, See, there are two different types uh, of master. Uh, If Paul left things at verse 13, it would be possible to push back and say, "Uh, this is quite demanding. The Spirit seems like a slave driver, demanding we put ourselves to death. Which is why Paul clarifies what sort of a master the Spirit is. Verse 14, for those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The spirit you received does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. And that, that makes all the difference in the world. The, the Spirit is not a drill sergeant screaming orders from across a, a parade ground. Uh, we're, we're not conscripted into the army, uh, nor are we trafficked as slaves. The Spirit is no slave dealer selling us into uh, servitude as galley slaves in God's ship. Uh, the Spirit doesn't motivate by the fear of judgment. How could he when there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus? No, the Spirit brings us to serve, not as slaves, but as sons. No, by sons, he doesn't mean that that only men are are included. He calls us sons uh, because we'll go on to see that in the Roman world, uh, well, it was uh, the sons which were were heirs, which we all are. Those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. Uh, The Spirit you received does not make you slaves so that you live in fear. That's what it's like to serve the flesh. The flesh and Satan are harsh taskmasters. They, they demand that, that we do the things that bring about our death. Uh, that, that chap that I was uh, chatting to earlier, before becoming a Christian, well, he had a terrible temper which uh, kept leading him in, into trouble, uh, into a living sort of death. And now he still battles with that sin, but it's a battle. Uh, where the battle lines are moving forward. Uh, The spirit is a different sort of master. The spirit is more like an adoption agency that places us within God's family. Uh, One writer helpfully says, uh, the term adoption uh, may have a somewhat artificial sound in our ears, uh, but in the Roman world of the first century, an adopted son was a son deliberately chosen by his adoptive father to perpetuate his name and inherit his estate he was not in the smallest degree inferior to a son born in the ordinary nature and might well enjoy the father's affection more fully and reproduce the father's character more worthily i heard of a family who a family of 5 who had three very rowdy boys to look after look after but dearly wanted Another daughter, uh, unable to have any more biological children, they decided to adopt a little girl who'd been badly treated uh, by her own parents. Uh, She'd been uh, beaten by her father, uh, malnourished uh, by her mother. Uh, She she had rickets, uh, a tangle of greasy hair, and no smiles. A grim little girl. And her adoptive parents had to work very hard to convince her that she was welcome, that she truly belonged there. And so they repeatedly said, well, we were given the boys, but we chose you. We got what we were given with them, but we deliberately chose you. What a wonderful thing to say to a a bruised and timid little child. That's the kind of boss uh, that the Spirit is. He brings us into a family, a loving family. And brothers and sisters, if you are in Christ today, that is what God says to you. I chose you. Before the foundation of the world, I deliberately picked you out for adoption into my family. You are incredibly welcome. The best illustration of that is, of course, the illustration that Jesus gives in the the parable of the lost son. A child squanders his father's inheritance on wild living. And when he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, father. Father. The son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to the servant, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger, sandals on his feet. Bring the fatted calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and now he's alive again. He's not welcomed back as a slave. Uh, to to starve in a pigsty he's not even welcomed back as a servant to to work off his debt he's welcomed back as a son and given all the privileges of family can you see the difference between between slaves and between sons Here's, here's the contrast slaves slaves wake up in pigsties sons wake up in the master bedroom. Slaves have to earn their keep, long hours for a daily crust. Sons can just enjoy their seat at their father's table, the the choicest of cut of the the fatted calf. Slaves have to be silent, uh, neither heard nor seen. Sons can approach their father at any time. A slave has to labor in order to please their master. A son automatically enjoys the favor of their father. Slaves can be removed if they don't perform. A son is there to stay. Slaves live in fear. Sons have no fear. The spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you receive brought about your adoption to sonship, and by him we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. This isn't just a metaphor uh, that where God is, is like a father. This is a real relationship with real implications for how we approach God. The Spirit encourages us to approach God as our Father, to call out Abba, Father. That's a very uh, homely term, a family term, closer to, uh, to Daddy. It's still got the respect of a father, but with a confidence uh, to call out for help. It's what Jesus calls God. And it's notable that the time that Jesus calls God Abba, Father, is in the Garden of Gethsemane. It's in his deepest distress when the temptation to put self first was at its greatest. He calls out for his Father's help. Relationships really show through when we're in distress. When we're in that battle, when I'm in trouble, the first person I turn to is often my dad. It should be equally quick to turn to my Heavenly Father. Uh, something uh, Elizabeth's uh, helping me to learn uh, at the moment, what it means for God to be my heavenly father. Uh, at four months old, uh, she needs help with pretty much everything. Uh, and when she needs it, uh, well, she doesn't present me a watertight case for, uh, for how helping her is going to benefit me. Uh, neither does she, uh, she turn to me and say, well, I've been really good today, and so I deserve to have my nappy changed. At best, she just cries out for help, and I love to help her because I'm her father, because I'm her Abba, and so does God. The Spirit encourages us to approach God along these lines, not with the fear of a slave, but with the faith of a son. And in in doing so, testifies to our spirit that we are God's children. And the obvious question uh, from that is, uh, well, what will that testifying feel like? What does it feel like to be a child of God? Uh, Some people will say, well, the the spirit gives us a warm feeling inside or an ecstatic experience or or a tranquil peace. And maybe he will. But when I think about my dad, I don't really go about feeling like he's my dad. Uh, I go around Relating to him as my dad, I ask him for things. I talk to him. I go to him for help. I trust what he says, and that covers a whole spectrum of feelings—from uh, from joy in having fun together, in respect for his wisdom, sadness when I let him down, and hope for seeing him again soon. The Spirit doesn't give a particular feeling that God is our Father. It goes deeper than feelings. The Spirit brings us to relate to God as our Father. And that is a real relationship. And to show how real it is, Paul outlines the real legal implications for the future. And that quote that I read earlier said, An adopted son was a son deliberately chosen by his adoptive father to perpetuate his name and inherit his estate. And the same is true here. Verse 17. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ Isn't that amazing? We're not just guests in God's household. We're not just distant relations that God has no time to see. We enjoy the full legal rights as heirs. Here's how committed God is to you. Everything that belongs to Jesus will one day belong to you. We inherit Jesus' relationship with his Father. Heirs of God could literally mean that we inherit God himself. God is not ashamed to be called your God. And we become co-heirs with Christ. Christ shares with us everything. He shares with us his glory. John 17, he says, I have given them the glory that you gave me. Christ shares his riches, 2 Corinthians 8, 9. Yet for your sake, Christ became poor so that you through his poverty might become rich. Christ shares his rule, Revelation 22, 5. And they will reign forever and ever. Christ shares his whole world with us. Hebrews 1, 2. In these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed as the heir of all things. All that belongs to Jesus will belong to us as co-heirs. And you see, God the Father isn't just a word that we use, something that we tag on at the start of a prayer, our Father in heaven. It isn't a pleasant fiction. When God says, I chose you for adoption into my family, he means it and all that it entails. How do we serve? We serve not as slaves, but as sons. Which then becomes a question for us, doesn't it? How do you serve? There's a world of difference between serving as a slave and serving as a son. What drives your service in church? Is it in order to please God or because God is pleased with you? Is it because you have to or because you get to? Is it in order to, to get to close, close to God or because you are close to God? For all those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. But in our last few moments, uh, verse 17 seems to end with a bit of a sting in the tail. Now if we're children then we are heirs heirs with God and co-heirs with Christ if indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory well why do we have to share in his sufferings i think we've uh, we've answered already this isn't here to scare us uh, but to encourage those who are suffering and struggling in that battle with sin jesus is god's child And as God's child, he too suffered. He too battled, was tempted in sin in every way, just as we are, yet did not sin. Uh, The ordinary Christian life is a fight. The ordinary Christian life is suffering. Am I really a Christian? Would a real Christian have these battles? Well, yes. It's the pathway that Jesus walked. And if it's the pathway that Jesus walked, it's the pathway uh, that we must walk. But it's not a battle that ends in death. It's a pathway, it's a battle uh, that ends in life and glory. So let's pray uh, that the Lord would keep us and help us in this battle. Our loving Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you that we can call you Father, uh, that uh, you've liberated us uh, from serving ourself, uh, liberated us from death, uh, so that we can serve you by the spirit lord please help us to do that please uh, by the spirit help us to put to death uh, the deeds uh, of the flesh please help us to serve not as slaves and uh, not out of slavish obligation uh, to you but as sons as your dearly loved children who will inherit everything with christ uh, father please bring it, bring these truths to bear on our minds so that we would know and praise you all the more in jesus name Amen.